0: So we're in the third um, message of our series, Bystander, and I've been reading several books. One of them is Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. He is a uh, homicide detective that decided to use his homicide skills um, in order to prove or disprove the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's what he said, uh, one of the things he said that, that just kind of stuck out to me. He said, I was 35 years old before I first paid attention to a pastor's sermon, A fellow officer had been inviting me to church for many months, and while I was able to put him off for some time, I eventually acquiesced and attended a Sunday morning service with my family. I managed to ignore most of what the pastor talked about until he began to paint a picture of Jesus that caught my attention. He characterized Jesus as a really smart guy who had some remarkably wise things to say about life, family, relationships, and work. I began to believe that this might be true. While I was uninterested in bowing my knees to Jesus as God, I was at least willing to listen to Jesus as a teacher. A week later, I purchased my first Bible. My friends knew me as an angry atheist, a skeptic who thoughtfully dissected Christians in the Christian worldview, yet I suddenly found myself reading the Gospels to hear what Jesus had to say. Something about the Gospels caught my attention um, more as an investigator than as someone interested in the ancient philosophy of an imaginary sage. By this time in my life, I had already served as patrol officer and a member of a gang detail, the Metro team investigating street narcotics, the SWAT team, and the crime and uh, impact team, investigating career criminals. I'd interviewed hundreds if not thousands of eyewitnesses and suspects. I'd become familiar with the nature of eyewitness statements and I understood how testimony was evaluated in a court of law. Something about the gospels struck me as more than mythological storytelling. The gospels actually appeared to be ancient eyewitness accounts. I conducted so many interviews and had such success uh, getting suspects to cop out that my department sent me to a number of investigative schools to refine my skills. I was eventually trained in forensic statement analysis, he calls it F- FSA for short, by carefully a- employing this methodology and scrutinizing a suspect's choice of pronouns, use of tense language, compression or expansion of time, along with many other linguistic te- tendencies. I was typically able to determine if he or she committed the crime, and I could often establish the time of day when the crime actually occurred. If this technique could provide me with such incredible insight into the statements of suspects and witnesses, why couldn't it be used to investigate the claims of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I began to use my FSA as I studied the Gospel of Mark. Within a month, and in spite of my deep skepticism and hesitation, I concluded that Mark's Gospel was the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter as dictated to John Mark. beginning to move from a belief that Jesus was a wise teacher to a belief in what he said about himself. I began a journey from casual assent to committed trust, from belief that to belief in. Now we're in this whole study of the book of John and we're looking at signs that John has given that point to the fact that Jesus is God's son. Now, as I was studying this, I I came across this intro, and it said this. It said, our world offers a a variety of gods. And when I use that term, I'm using the lowercase g, a variety of gods. One major religion features a god of power and revenge. He's angry, he's powerful, and he's out to get you. That's what they say. Another offers a god that is silent and indifferent to the sufferings of people. So, in other words, he created the world, and then he just went off to do something else, said, y'all are on your own. That's what another religion believes. There's another one offers a God that is mysterious and unknowable. He absorbs all of humanity into a great cosmic ocean of oneness. So that means that the trees are God, that the stars are God, the chair you're sitting on is God, you are God, I'm God, we're all God. That's what they believe. And then he says this, only one faith worships a personal God known primarily for sacrificing his life for the people he loves. In the book of John profiles this God, the personal God. And when I say this, I'm using the capital G. Now, <clears throat> since we're talking about religion, I, want, I wanted to ask you, have you ever come across either in, in you know organized religion or unorganized religion, whatever, have you ever come across this, this truth? Commandments are greater than compassion. What I mean is my rules are more important than you. You ever come across this? Typically, I grew up in a fundamental Baptist church, and in a fundamental Baptist church, it was all about the rules. We don't care what you say. You can't come in here unless you wear the right clothes. You can't come in here unless you're going to believe everything that we tell you to believe. You can't have questions. Our commandments, our rules are more important than compassion. And i got to tell you, Jesus didn't like people like this. You don't have to read long to see that, that they were his enemies. Week three of this series, you need to understand That John, the bystander, the eyewitness, didn't follow Jesus because his commands were better than someone else's commands. He followed Jesus because for three years he was an eyewitness to everything he did. And then at the end of those three years, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead just as he predicted. And not only John, but all the other eyewitnesses except Judas went from being cowards to proclaiming in Jerusalem, the very place where they crucified Jesus, their whole message centered around this. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him say you're sorry. Their whole message was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it was based on eyewitness evidence. We know this because they wrote it down. Now, John wrote the book of John, but he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So in 1st John, here's what he says, very first two verses. That which was from the beginning, not the beginning of time, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That was, which was from the beginning, which we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now he's talking about Jesus there. Jesus is the word of life. The life appeared. Jesus appeared. We've seen him. We're testifying to this. And we proclaim to you that, that the eternal life, Jesus, was with the Father, has appeared to us. John tells us at the end of just John, just John and first, second, third John, so just John. He says, I write these things down not for your information, but for your transformation. He says, I don't want you just to know about it. I want you to believe, and I want you to have life, this eternal life. So he arranges his letter, the book of John, just John, around seven signs, not seven commandments, seven signs that point to Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. So let me just kind of set the stage. If we put that map up there, Gary. So you see, um, the first appears Cana. The very first sign that John tells us about, we looked at two weeks ago, and it's the sign that he was at the wedding, and he he turned water into wine. Now, after that, Jesus comes down to Jerusalem, and it's a long ways to Jerusalem. Then he goes back up through Samaria, and there's some stuff that happens there. You need to read all of John chapter 1, 2, 3. We're in John chapter 5 today. He comes back to Cana. In Cana, he meets a royal official from Capernaum, 20 miles away. Jesus heals that man's son from 20 miles away. Never was any closer than 20 miles. And then today, he's going to come back down to Jerusalem. So put those next two up there. These are the signs. First one, the first sign, turning water into wine. It's the only one that rhymes. Remember that? Second one was, he says to the royal official, go, your son will live. And, And I don't know if you can read this. At the bottom it says, the man believed the word of Jesus. He believed and he took off without ever knowing until the next day he meets his servants, and they said that the boy was healed at the very hour. Now we come to John chapter 5, and this one is healing on the Sabbath, or if you have your Bibles, sometimes it'll say healing um, at the pool of Bethesda or healing the lame man. John chapter 5 verse 1, sometime later, the reason it was sometime later is you saw how far Cana was down to Jerusalem. It took him a while to get there. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which is which in Aramaic. And by the way, Aramaic is what the the common language of the Hebrew people. Which is in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored colonnades. Now, why is there again? Why are there so many details? Because John was there. He'd seen it and when he wrote this, it still existed, which gives us an indication of when the book of John was written. Some of you have given up hope in the Gospels of the, of the New Testament because people told you that it was written hundreds of years later. If you pay attention to the details, you'll see there's no way it was written that far in the future. This was still in the lifetime of people who had seen these things. There's no way it was written that late. It was written early by an eyewitness. Now, let me uh, show you this. A couple of, couple of pictures here. The Pool of Bethesda, for years people said, see, this shows that the Bible is not true because we haven't found the Pool of Bethesda. They found the Pool of Bethesda in 1956. I love it. It, it happens all the time. People say, well, this proves the Bible isn't true, and then archaeology will prove the Bible is true. So this is just outside. You can see here, this, is, this would have been the Temple Mount. So what we're seeing here is, is an artist's rendition of what it probably looked like back in Jesus' day. Go back to the first one. Okay, so here, when, you, when we go to Jerusalem this summer, we're going to go to this pool. We'll walk around. You'll have to use your imagination. So now, go to the next one. Now, here, this is what it looked like. And, and part of the slide is, is off there, but you can look this up. So people said not only did this not exist, but they didn't even have structures that had five porches. It said five colonnades. That means five porches. When they finally figured out what was going on, check this out. If you count, this is one side, this is two sides, this is three sides, this is four sides. Look at this right across here. What does that make? How many porches does it have? five exactly like the eyewitness said it did and more than likely this down here was a ritual bath and this up here was actually the spring-fed pool and they would open up the the dam and, and refill it it was it's incredible how accurate the bible is now here i want you to keep that in your mind here a great number of disabled people used to lie they would just lie there because they didn't have any hope and who were they they were the blind the lame the paralyzed The most desperate group of people. You need to know that in the first century, Rome had a law that doctors could not examine a dead body. They didn't understand the death. So what a doctor would try to do was get to a body while it was still living and perform a little bit of an autopsy while it was still living so that they might know the cause of death. Can you imagine that? The reason the doctor's coming is because he wants to know why you're dying, so he's going to open you up before you die? Doctors are scary in the first century. They're also extremely scarce because only rich people could afford a doctor. So if you weren't rich, if you were part of the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, the desperate, you had no hope of ever seeing a doctor. So you had to rely on the temples or superstition. The temples, because in this day and age, you've heard of Greek mythology, there were thousands of gods, lowercase g, And you had to do whatever would please that God. So you would go to a temple and you would pay them or you'd do whatever they told you to do, hoping that that God might have favor on you. Or you had to pay attention to the local superstitions. This story actually is based on a superstition. There was a a superstition that said, occasionally an angel of God would come down and stir the water. And if you were the first person into the water, then you would be healed. Can you imagine the chaos The pool of Bethesda was real. The superstition was not. When they excavated this pool, they found out that it was a spring-fed pool. And more than likely what happened was every once in a while there would be bubbles that would come up. And somebody came up with the great idea, it's an angel stirring the water. Can you imagine? Lame people, blind people, sick, dying people trying to get in the water. I kind of imagine some people died. Chunk your friend in the water, and they're lame, and they don't get healed. How smart is that? It's a superstition. And we know that. I'll show you just in a minute how we know that. The chaos surrounding that sounds much more like the enemy of God than it does the God of the Bible, right? Because the enemy of God is a counterfeiter. The enemy of God can also perform miracles. If the enemy of God can perform miracles, we better use a lot of discernment to know whether it's from God or not. And I don't even think it takes a lot of discernment here. It's a superstition. Nobody was healed. So this guy had been laying there for a long time. Jesus intentionally walks into this area of death that people avoided like the plague because it was like the plague. It smelled horrible. You ever been in, and I know they're not all like this, but you've been in a nursing home that smells of death? This place smelled of death. Can you imagine? There were probably people who died there. And wouldn't you, wouldn't you hate to be the guy that occasionally had to walk through and find out the dead people and carry them off? I mean, you don't even know. You've got to kick them. If they moan, you leave them there. If not, you drag them off. This was a place of death. Not only that, it was near the sheep's gate. I, I, I forgot to point that out. Put, the, put that last slide up, Gary, with the, that one. Over here is the sheep's gate. The temple mount is where you would take the sheep. So they would hold the, the, the acceptable sheep here, And then when it was time to make sacrifices, they would take them up and the priest would sacrifice them. Well, not only do you have dead and dying people hanging around, you got sheep who do sheep things. Jesus walked into this area of death and stench intentionally. People lay in there all day long, hoping, hoping that the angel of God would stir the waters. And Jesus says this is the perfect opportunity for a sign that points to who I am. Verse 5. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. How many years? Can you imagine laying in a place of death day in, day out, 38 years? When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, here's what I think. Now, I think, I think Jesus leaned down. We don't know this, but I think he leaned down, and he asked. I know he asked him a really, really strange question. He asked... Do you want to get well? Excuse me? I've been laying here 38 years. Do I want to get well? Now let's, lay, let's use your imagination for just a minute. Let's say... That Jesus snuck in here before we ever started anything. The, before, you know, we got music going loud enough. We don't want people to hear what you're saying on the opposite side of the room, so we have a little happening music. This is not a funeral that we're going to. You know, this is, this is a celebration. So there's this great atmosphere, and you're having a good time, and Jesus slides into the chair next to you, and he turns and he taps you on the shoulder, and he says, do you want to get well? Excuse me? Do you want to get well. Don't assume that everybody wants to get well. Some folks would rather stay sick than get well because their problem they know, health they don't know about. I'd rather stay like I am. Making changes is difficult. It's scary. This man was used to being pitied. He was used to begging. He was used to people doing stuff for him. And if he were to get well, that means he would suddenly have to do things for himself. Sometimes it's much more easy To to keep our disability, especially if it's manageable, it is much easier to stay in our disability than to get well. Jesus is asking you today, do you want to get well? You will not get well until you say yes, until your heart says, I'll do whatever it takes to get well. And the same thing applies to spiritual healing. Some of you have been complaining and complaining and complaining, and somebody says, well, here's what you should do, and you go, yes, but. you got the biggest but that anybody's ever seen, B-U-T, one T. Yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. Well, then just stay sick because I don't have time for that. Now, you want to get well, I'll spend all the time in the world with you. I will help you. But the moment you start the yes, buts, I don't have time for that. The world my world my life is too short to hang out with big-butted people do you want to get well cuz i'm not sure you do your response to this question reveals the condition of your heart tells jesus the condition of your heart cuz it's not it's not that important For me to know, but it's important for you and for Jesus to know. Look what the guy says in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes on ahead of me. For 38 years, I've been trying to get in the pool. That's proof enough to Jesus that the guy wants to get well. Now notice, Jesus completely ignores the superstition talk. He doesn't even acknowledge it. He gives this man an impossible command. And I want you to think about some of the impossible commands that you've been given. We'll look at the list in a minute. But do you want to be comforted? Because I'm not sure you do. I think maybe you want to stay in your misery. Do you want to be forgiven? I'm not sure you do. Do you want to be free from sin's power? I'm not sure you do. Do you want to be saved from your sin? I'm not sure you do. Here's the reason. Jesus would not have healed this man against his will, and neither will he heal you against your will so one last time do you want to get well it's real important for you to know the answer to that question now here is the impossible command jesus said get up how much muscle do you think is on a leg that has been laying down for 38 years not much get up pick up your mat and walk Jesus, do you see the predicament I'm in? (laughs) I chose to come to you, my child. I see you. Question is, do you see me? See, the power was not in the man's legs. The power was in the command. It's on your listening guide. You know the the man's one job, the sole job? Obey. Just obey. Your mission should you choose to accept it is to obey Jesus. if you want to get well, you must obey. Look what John says. I love this at once, at once, the man was cured. he picked up his mat and he walked. I want you just to picture this. he's laying there and and I kind of figured now this was this was kind of a Semi-private miracle. I mean, he's, he's in this big place where there's all kinds of people, but Jesus didn't go to all the people. He went to this one guy. So his disciples are with him, and then there's people around. So there's a crowd that knows what's going on. Can you imagine if you're the guy next to him that Jesus didn't come to heal, and you're going, what's going to happen? And you see the dude stand up and walk? <laughs> To this man's surprise, to everyone in the area's surprise, he walked. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing, we don't know, he walked directly to the temple. He was right next to the temple mount. I think he went to the temple to give thanks to God because he hadn't been in the temple for how many years? Sick people don't get to go to the temple. He's in the shadow of the temple, but he's not been to the temple for 38 years until he's touched by Jesus. So Jesus is going to give you some impossible commands. If you know anything about the scripture, you know these commands. Here's one of them. Love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's straight from the mouth of Jesus. Oh, you don't know what he did? Yes, I do. He's God. The power is in the command. What are you supposed to do with the command? Obey. I can't forgive them. Have you tried? Yes. No, no, no. You've tried in your power. You've not tried in God's power. Because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to help you forgive. Forgive those who have wronged us. Oh, I love this one. I just stuck this one in here because I know (laughs) y'all. Let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen. I've heard you. That's an impossible command for some of you, actually for all of us, right? Unless the spirit of the living God resides in your heart. Because Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you've got unwholesome talk coming out of your mouth, you've got an unwholesome heart. Your job, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth it's through the power of Jesus, not through your power. Our problem, our big problem in the church <clears throat> is not that we don't know what to do, it's that we don't have strength. I came across this, I thought this was a great quote, Walter Brueggemann was an Old Testament scholar and... And some people say he was the greatest Old Testament scholar of all, but I don't know about that, but this is a great quote. He said, I have found myself discovering that mostly I do not need more advice but strength. I do not need new information but the courage, freedom, and authorization to act on what I already have been given in the gospel. My experience in the church for 37 years is we know way more than we do. I need more Bible study. No, you don't. You need to obey what you've already been taught. Try that and see how deep you go with Jesus. I'm kind of blown away because for 37 years I've had people say, man, your preaching is really shallow. I'm like, sorry, doing the best I can. It's what the Scripture says. I'm not going to try to add to it. If I were to guess, I would guess that most Christians I know obey about 10% of what they know. And it's why people don't want to be involved in the church. Because we don't live what we say we believe. You want to experience God's blessing, obedience always precedes blessing. Always. You can actually write that if you ever listen to God. Write that above precedes. Obedience always precedes blessing. You see, in the first sign where Jesus turned water into wine, we aren't told when the water became wine. Remember the story? He told the servants, he said, get those water pots, and these were the huge water pots, Go fill them with water. And he said, then take it to the head waiter. When they took it to the head waiter, they dipped in their their, uh, little cup, and they handed it to him. He didn't know where it came from. They knew where it came from. Somehow in the process, it had turned water into wine. I believe it's as they were going. As they were obedient, he turned water into wine. We know with the royal uh, official's son. We know that it was as he was going. Jesus said, "Go, your son will live." No evidence. He was supposed to go the next day. His servants meet him. What time did he get well? At one o'clock in the afternoon, the very hour that Jesus said he would be made well, he was made well. It was as he was going that Jesus poured out his power. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in I'm in Luke chapter twenty two now, but a couple of weeks ago I was in Luke chapter seventeen, and I read about the ten lepers. Jesus comes across ten lepers, and he, he says to them, he gives them an absurd command. Now, in the Scripture, we're, we're told that if you had leprosy and you were healed from leprosy, you had to go to the priest, present yourself. The priest would examine you and say, yes, you've been healed. But Jesus tells the ten lepers, go show yourself to the priest before they were healed. That's stupid, unless Jesus gave you the command. And look what happens. Luke 17, 14, as they went, the lepers, they were what? Cleansed. It was as they were going. So I believe it's as we're going, as we obey, then the blessing comes. Then the power comes. You need to understand that Jesus, when Jesus commands the impossible, he supplies the power. Your part in your healing is to obey whatever Jesus has told you to do. Now, it gets kind of interesting. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law, remember that, the law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. Now, I showed you how close he was to the Temple Mount, right? So Jesus says, pick up your mat and walk. And if Jesus says, pick up my mat and walk, I hadn't walked in 38 years, I'm picking up my mat and walking. So he's carrying his mat, he probably is going to the temple to worship, and the religious police are around going, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. That's what they're doing. You cannot carry that And so this guy's like, "Uh, well, I'm just doing what I was told to do. Now, the law, whose law? Was it God's law? Do you think for a second Jesus would command someone to do something that contradicts God's law? Say no. Please say no. The law they were talking about was called the tradition of the elders. (laughs) Your tradition. They tried to make it equal with God's law. The tradition... They had actually come up with 39 categories, not just 39 things, 39 categories of things you could not do on the Sabbath day. And one of them was you couldn't carry a mat from one place to another. You couldn't carry anything from one place to another. God's law, God's law said you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. This guy had not been working for 38 years. This had nothing to do with his job. He wasn't working for the mat making company. <laughs> they thought he was violating the fourth commandment here's the fourth commandment remember the sabbath day by keeping it holy Where's are just saying not carry a mat Anyone They made it up The point of the commandment was to take a break from labor not to take a break from compassion The point was take a break from your occupation not from kindness these religious police, it's what always happens when people defend, go ahead, an ideology. My ideas are better than your ideas. It's when they defend a political agenda. Oh, my party's better than your party. It's when you put the things that you say you have belief in above people. It's when people try to defend party loyalty. The Republicans are better than the Democrats. Democrats better than Republicans. I think they all suck. I just said that on I'm going to jail. It's what happens every time people put religion over people. When what's best for people is no longer what's most important to you, you're at odds with God. Because John told us in verse chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved what the The animals, the trees, the fish, the atmosphere. No, 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 the people. We know this because if God had wanted to save cows, he'd have become a cow. If he'd wanted to save whales, he'd have become a whale. He could have talked to him like Dory. (laughs) But we know he came as a person because he wanted to save people. So John would say it like this, for God so loved the Jews and the Gentiles and every race and all two genders, there's only two for every generation. God loved them so much that he sent his son, my rabbi, my savior, my friend, into the world to pay for sin so that whoever believes in him might have life in his name. God's priority is people. It's not the planet. Believe it or not, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be a new Jerusalem. He came for people. And so this healed guy with the mat over his shoulder, he answers the critics and says this in verse 11. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And instead of rejoicing with them these, uh, that he'd been miraculously healed, the religious leaders condemned him for carrying the mat. How dare you be a mat carrier on the Sabbath? get out of our church. He didn't even know who Jesus was. This is remarkable to me. A guy heals you, you don't even ask his name. But here's what he says. I just want you religious guys to know that I opted for the guy who chose to heal me, not the guys who've been ignoring me my whole life, not the guys who've been telling me I deserve to lay there for 38 years because either I sinned or my parents sinned because that's what they believed. They believed, they taught, the Jewish leaders taught that if a pregnant woman committed a sin, the child in her belly also committed that sin. That's just stupidity. But that's what they taught. So he says, I'm going to choose that guy over you. If you're right and I'm getting what I deserve, well, that gave, guy gave me what I did not deserve, so I'm going to follow his instructions, not yours. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you? To pick it up and walk. Such willful blindness to the grace of God. We have another rule. This rule says you can't practice medicine on the Sabbath. Your life was not in danger. You can practice medicine only to save a life. That's what their rule said. Your life was not in danger. He could have waited another day to heal you. Who is this guy? We must condemn him. See, the cancel culture is nothing new. We must cancel anybody who doesn't follow our rules. That's been going on at least as long as Jesus has been around. It's what graceless religion does. It's what graceless people do. They'd taken the Sabbath, God's gift to man, and they'd made it a prison of rules and regulations. Verse 13, the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away. The Greek meat... The Greek actually means slipped away, actually means to dodge. So Jesus' purpose was not physical healing. The physical healing pointed that he was the son of God. He didn't choose to heal everyone. There were all kinds of people there. He chose one, he slipped into the crowd, he dodged the crowd because physical healing isn't why he came. This guy would eventually die. Spiritual healing is why he came. Later, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Not only has this guy not done anything wrong when they're condemning him for carrying his mat, he's not done anything for 38 years. (laughs) It's a joke that these guys are saying he's sinning. Now, from this passage, if you just read it, it seems like Jesus is saying to him, stop sinning, and I believe Jesus was saying to him, you sin, so stop it. I think the guy said, okay. But I also think there's another meaning. I think that, because Jesus was a funny guy. You know, the log in the eye, people would have laughed at that. How do you try to take a speck when you got a log in your eye? We actually acted that out with our kids at family worship. Jesus was a funny guy. I think Jesus is saying, hey, Matt-carrying guy, you better quit carrying that, Matt. <laughs> or those Pharisees are going to do something worse to you. And he and, the, he and the healed guy are going, what more can you do to a guy who's been in a living hell for 38 years? Oh, you're going to cast me out of the temple? I haven't been to the temple in 38 years, homie. Boy, that's going to make me upset. So I do believe he sinned because Jesus says stop sinning. And the only thing worse than a living hell for 38 years is a living hell in hell forever. So Jesus is saying to him, okay, I know this has been bad, but there is a worse place So stop it. I think the guy's like, yes, sir. I think he became a follower. We don't know that for sure. But here's what we do know. I think he lost all fear of religion. When you realize who Jesus is, you'll lose your fear of religion and religious people. Because I don't have another explanation for what he does next. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. He goes back, I think he's still carrying the mat. Hey, it's Jesus. I think you've heard of him. He's the one who healed me. And I think he turned around. (laughs) Let me leave your temple of rules. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day. I think he said, hey, I'm just doing what my dad's doing. Hey, hey, do you know that father violates your religious rules on the Sabbath, too? My father is always at work to this very day, and I, too, am working for this reason. Check it out. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough, but look what he was doing now. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Liberal people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's all over the place. It's what got him killed. And the religious leaders said, he's making himself equal with God. Who does he think he is? And that's the exact question that every generation has to answer. Who do you think Jesus is? Because I'll tell you who Jesus thought he was. He thought he was God's son. And John and Matthew, John Mark, who who recorded Peter's um, version of what happened, and Dr. Luke, who hung out with Paul, And Bartholomew and James and John and Philip and Andrew, they all believed he was the son of God. This guy is making himself out to be equal with God. That's what he came to do. But who would do that? There's only three options for for a person to do that, to say, I am God's son. Because, see, they knew to say our father, but he was saying my father. He made it personal. And that's when they said he's making himself equal with God. There's only three options. Either he's lying. And he knows he's lying. Either he's crazy and he doesn't know he's not God's son. Or he's God's son. And all of these guys died he was God's son. John would say, I chose seven signs. How do you back that up if you're really God's son? Well, you would do miraculous things. And in the Old Testament, it says that the Messiah would heal the blind, the lame. Lepers are cleansed. Deaf would hear. And what did Jesus do? He healed the lame, the blind, the deaf could hear. He cleansed lepers. Had they recognized the scriptures, they would have recognized their Savior. Look what Jesus says in in verse 39. Jump down to 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you believe that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Your whole life you've studied the scriptures. Now, at this time, it would have only been the Old Testament, what we call the law and the prophets, just the Old Testament. He says you studied them. Because you think there's life in them, but there's no life in the text. John tells us the word became flesh. You've you've opted for the written over the living. You've opted for your interpretation over a living demonstration of the power of God. See, God made it remarkably simple. John tells us in the first, God showed up, he spoke up, he did the things God would do, he predicted his death, and then he came back from the dead and he rose in glory. Here's how John says at the beginning of just John, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, that's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true life that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Check this out. He came to that which was his own. Talking about Israel, the nation of Israel, but his own, Israel did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, Jesus' name, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. That's why we talk about being adopted into his family. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word, Jesus, became flesh, made his tabernacle, his dwelling among us. We've seen it. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. My question for you today is does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? For God so loved the Democrats. For God so loved the Republicans, the Libertarians. God so loved the world. If your version of religion or politics gets in the way of loving people, you're at odds with God. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people the way God does? If it does, you're at odds with God, and you need to be made well. Do you want to be made well? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace. We ask you to pour it out on us today. We ask that we would realize we've never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to you. And if they matter to you, they better matter to us. Teach us what it means to love like Jesus did. Teach us to live like Jesus did. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We have one basket at the back. It's our joy basket. That's how we give here at New Life. The uh, Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and so uh, you can sing and cheer. And I don't know. You can also give online. Um, most of our giving comes online. Probably 90% of our giving comes online, nlccp.com. Um, we, we give through PushPay, and it's very easy to do. But the first time you go to our website, nlccp.com, it says online giving. You click on that, and it um, allows you to go and set up, and you can, you can give um, that way. And so every day, just about every day of the week, I get an email, somebody's giving the way I do it, as soon as I get paid, before I put it in my bill folder, before I put it in the bank, I tithe off that 10%, we believe that's what the Bible teaches, and that's how God has blessed us, is because enough people believe in that, they give regularly, even during a pandemic. So we didn't ask for the first PPP loan, because I didn't believe ethically we should do that, because we didn't need it. We didn't ask for the second PPP loan, because ethically we didn't need it. God blows my mind. Every time we have a board meeting and we see what God has given us, I'm just like, they gave that much? Thank you, Jesus. Only someone who really knows who Jesus is shares what's in here. And if you're not there yet, it's okay. We're not going to condemn you. But when, when I give from here, it says, God, you're in charge of everything. And usually, usually the last thing people want to let go of is their money. I believe what we're doing lasts for eternity. And so I don't hesitate to ask people to give because somebody's going to be in heaven because of the ministry of this church. And I think you want to be a part of that. I could start preaching again, but it's too late. Get up and get out of here.